Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 3-354 of the Run Run Live podcast. How's everyone doing? We got our first snow on the ground up here in New England this week. It's been a mild winter so far. It's good for me, for my running. In today's show, we have a good long chat with my old buddy Tor about his experience with Lyme disease, and this is part of my series on athletes who have been challenged and have had to reconsider the role of running and athletics in their lives. And in section one, I'm going to drop a piece on selecting a heart rate monitoring device based on a listener question. And in section two, I'm going to share some timeless wisdom by Peter Drucker. And this past Sunday, I raced the Mill Cities Relay. They gave me the long leg, the 9.5-mile leg, and I was uh, on a solid male senior team with four other guys in my club. And I'll talk more about the race in the outro, but I'm, I'm running well, and everything is cool with my training, and I'm looking forward to the spring season. When you join me for my call with Tor today, I want you to listen to his attitude. He's super positive about life, even when this insidious disease is tearing at him. And his positive attitude is infectious. Horrible wordplay, not intended. And when I asked him how he coped with this, he said he just stayed positive. And that's the lesson here. The things that impact your life have no meaning other than that which you give them. You can either feed the good dog or feed the mean dog, as the old story goes. So stay positive, be that infectious force for those around you. You deserve it, and they deserve it too. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Heart rate training devices. I had a good question from one of our Run Run Live tribe, Lisa, this week about heart rate training devices. And to paraphrase, she wants to try heart rate training but is overwhelmed by the variety of choices and monitors themselves. 
and she thinks she wants a wrist device with a large, easy-to-read continuous display, perhaps one that would signal when she went above the heart rate limit. Can I recommend one that I think would fit this description, or maybe that I use myself? Well, first... A great resource for this kind of question is Rainmaker, who we talked to before, DC Rainmaker. The link's in the notes here. We talked to Ray not that long ago, episode 4331, and he goes deep, and he maintains a recommended device list for all sports combinations and for men and for women. But the main question here is, of the hundreds of devices, what's best for heart rate training? And it's tough because all the different technologies are leaping ahead so quickly. As a starting point, any heart rate device needs to measure the heart rate. Yeah. How how do they do this? Well, theoretically, you can measure your heart rate by placing a sensor anywhere on your body. <laughs> I've seen simple finger-based sensors, like the polar monitor clips on the treadmill you see in the gym. And when you get a, your stress test from the cardiology lab or a cardiogram, they're going to stick sensors all over your body. They're measuring not only your heart rate, but how well it transmits to different parts of your body. And for the recreational use out in the wild, we still basically have two choices for heart rate monitoring, the wrist-based systems and the heart rate strap, the chest strap. So note, there are sports headphones that now have heart rate sensors in them, but I haven't done any experimenting with them. And if someone at Jabra wants to send me a pair, I'll test them out. (laughs) Yeah, you know. I suppose you could design a device for nestling in any available body crevice, but maybe there's a business for those heart rate nose rings or something, and I'll freely gift that business idea to you. You can get in on the ground floor. Let's not go down that rat hole. The possibilities are disturbing. Back to our topic. So the wrist-based heart rate monitoring is the maturing option. And when I talked to Ray, he's saying, you know, it's not quite there yet. It's almost there. So there's an emerging family of wrist-based heart rate tracking devices, and they don't use the chest strap. So think like a Fitbit or a watch. They use optical sensors on the wrist to get your heart rate. And in my experience, and Ray's, these aren't quite there yet. In my experience, the heart rate report from the Fitbit is directional at best but not super useful for training purposes. Those wrist-based applications also typically have a phone app of some sort that they utilize or report via Bluetooth or some other protocol. And this means if you want to get the real-time application of the device, you need to have your phone with you, which may or may not be a non-starter for you. So that leads us to the old standby, the heart rate strap, the chest strap. So what is a heart rate strap? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It's a stretchy strap with a heart rate sensor on it that you wrap around your chest. And not to get too personal, but this is an area where men and women have different architectural challenges. The strap is typically, you know, maybe an inch wide. It's got the stretchy part on the back and the sensors on the front. And the sensors are designed to nestle just under your Uh, pectoral muscles on the front, right over where your heart should be. Some people have a lot of trouble wearing the strap because of their particular shape, their physique. My experience is you can 
get used to it fairly quickly. It will chafe you if you have a whole lot of extra skin in that area. And my understanding is that this chafing is a particular issue for the women. There are different styles of straps and different generations of straps. So take your time to read the user reviews and see which one works best for you. Now the issue I've had with the straps are chafing, one, and fidelity. So I'm used to running with the strap and only worry about chafing if I'm going to be out over, let's say, two hours or I'm racing hard. And all I'll do if I'm worried about chafing is put a little lube on the edges of the strap. The same way I'll put lube on my pointy bits or the waistline of my shorts. And the worst case is you get a nice little razor cut from the edge of the strap, but it won't kill you. The other issue I get, especially in the cold weather, is contact or fidelity. When it's cold and dry, the sensors don't pick up. They don't pick up well until you warm up. And when the sensors don't pick up, the algorithms try to guess and you get screwy readings. A quick way to remedy this problem is to run your strap under warm water at the faucet before you put it on. Cold water works as well, but it's a bit shocking. And there is a special gel you can buy for this exact purpose, but I wouldn't waste your money. Unless you're a triathlete, in that case, buy two jars because triathletes buy every useless expensive thing, right? That's what I've heard. If you're going to use lube of your own, make sure it's a non-petroleum-based lube like uh you know vaseline's probably bad because it's going to it might dissolve the plastic bits of the strap so be careful with that i should add here that putting a on a strap that is still wet from the <laughs> last time you wore it is a bit unsettling uh, you want to have a place to hang it up to dry after you run and one of the biggest issues with this stuff i'll be honest with you is finding it when you need it if you what you want to do is you want to create a routine of always having it in one place and putting it back so you'll have it when it's time to run. You won't have to think about it or hunt for it. So the good thing about the strap system is that it is highly, highly, highly accurate in measuring your heart rate. You won't have to wait for a readout on your phone. It talks to your watch, typically via the ANT protocol, instantaneously. It works great. For spot-on heart rate training, where a couple of beats per minute is actually quite important. Now, to narrow down the choices, you should decide what your use case is or are. Are you just looking to use the device for heart rate training? Do you also want pace and distance, etc.? How accurate do you need it to be? Are you going to be doing multi-sport? Do you need it to do biking? Do you need it to handle swimming? Are you going to want some of uh, that map-based stuff like geocaching? Because each of these answers will narrow your possibility. And I'm going to assume we're just talking about running here. And a few words on multi-sport. The running watches will typically do multi-sport as well in some form or fashion. And there's really not a big leap from tracking a run versus tracking a bike. The extra functionality specifically for cyclists is the ability to interface with a power meter. And this is a device that's built into the pedals that measures how hard you're pushing. And I've never had a power meter, so I don't know much about it. I don't need it. For swimming, running watches tend to fall down. Can the watch even go underwater, right? Because that's a bit of a requirement if you're taking it swimming. And as most of us know, 
there's a big difference between water-resistant and waterproof. The other big issue is that even if your watch goes underwater, the ANT communication protocol and most of the GPS signal does not. This means even if you've got your HR strap on, your watch won't hear it. It just doesn't work when you're swimming. Uh, it also means the watch only sees the satellite when your arm's above water, <laughs> and that gives you a crappy GPS tracking, even if you're in overwater situations. So what I do is I tuck the watch under my swim cap, and that allows me to stay in contact with the satellites when I'm open water swimming. If you're doing geocaching or some other map-based navigation thing, it's really another application altogether, and you're going to want a device specific for that. The navigation on your running watch is very basic, although I did find my way out of the woods in the dark once using the watch after Buddy and I lost the trail. Now, the good stuff. Running, heart rate training. You can still get heart rate-specific devices, so they just do heart rate. So the wrist device and the strap from Polar or other providers, if that's all you want. And then there are the endurance athletics specific watches. And I've always run with a Garmin, although I do have a Sunto device that showed up at my house for no reason. I gave it to Teresa. I've never used it. I started with the Garmin 205, which was just pace and distance, quite handy when I was traveling. When its battery died, I upgraded to the 305 and added the heart rate strap. And when I started training with Jeff at PRS Fit, I needed that heart rate. That was probably five years ago. And these are the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Buick Century of running watches. Bulky, big buttons, bulletproof. And I currently run with a Garmin 310 XT with a heart rate strap. I've had it for a couple of years. It's bulletproof and fits what I need. Good GPS, heart rate for running and biking, waterproof for swimming, rugged, good display, great battery life, like 12 hours, great heart rate tracking, training, and racing. The Ant interface works all the time with several different computers. Now, I don't care too much about the community aspects of these things. Garmin Express works without too much fuss. And Garmin Connect does what I need to. It's fun to look at the maps of your routes after you upload them and see your splits from races. It's also informative to see how your heart rate responds in workouts to surges and climbs, etc. So that's what I use. The other thing Lisa asks about is continuously monitoring. So my experience is that you really can't dial in either pace or heart rate instantaneously, especially when you're learning. What this means is the expectation that you can have the watch buzz every time you're off pace or your heart rate drifts is just going to, in my experience, drive you crazy. I do use the workout feature to remind me when I'm supposed to do something, like during a step-up run where I want it to buzz X minutes in when the step-up starts. I also have it set to buzz automatically every mile so I can get a quick pace and distance update and also every 20 minutes so I can get a quick update. And remember, when I'm heart rate training, I don't look at pace and distance. So I've gone on too long on this post already, so let me summarize by saying that the most important thing is not the device. It is the understanding of your heart rate zones. And if you're going to do heart rate training, you need to dial in your heart rate effort zones. And that takes a heart rate coach's help. 
uh, Jeff at PRS Fit, he helped me initially set mine up because the tables, the Maffetone tables and those other tables, they're just too average. Uh, those formulas are too average and will not apply to you more than likely. And now for today's featured interview. Hey, Chris, this is Tor. You're back again. I'm back again. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. What's going on, buddy? So uh, you and I have talked before on the podcast. Long, long time ago, we talked about the Canadian death race. Yeah, that was the Canadian death race. So it was actually in like the far channels of the northern Canadian Rockies. And what's really interesting is that I know uh, you and I are going to talk a little bit about Lyme. What's really interesting is that I have been battling my current state with uh, chronic Lyme basically since that conversation we had two weeks before I went out to the Canadian Death Race. Right. So like I said, I'm doing kind of a series on people who are sort of uh, career endurance athletes like you and I, right? Not necessarily champions, but it was a big part of our lives sure. and our passion. And then what happens when you, you run up against that challenge, right? And for you, that's been Lyme disease now for what? Four years? Yeah. Five so, years? Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. I think in hindsight, I believe firmly that I've been dealing with Lyme disease for now about five years, uh, six years, or whenever that, when we spoke that time. I didn't realize that I was dealing with chronic Lyme, didn't realize I was actually ill until about a year and a half ago, or a little over a year and a half ago. It was May of 2000, what would that be, 15, when basically within a matter of about two months, my health just went from running ultra marathons at will to basically having chronic fatigue and not even be able to get the enough energy to even run in the morning. And then I had a whole bunch of other symptoms that kind of snowballed and took over my life. Yeah. Living where we live, Tor, I know so many people, especially endurance athletes who have had some brush with limes. And I'm always yeah. terrified that I'm going to get it. Yeah, my message yeah, to you is, and you know this, check yourself and absolutely do it. Uh, Lyme is a really nasty critter. you have any idea when you got bit? I do. I, I'll say this, and I think this is probably really beneficial for anybody listening in here. So I do, uh, and I have either notes from all the different symptoms that's happened over the years to me. And so I just have a full story. And that was really, really helpful to have that full story for whenever I was working with doctors. And so basically, Canadian Death Race, last time we spoke, you know, what was that, five, six years ago, I was training for the Canadian Death Race. It's a, basically an 80-mile run in the Canadian Rockies with about 15,000 feet of climbing. And so uh, you got to train for it. It's an 80-mile race and in the mountains. So I was doing some pretty substantial training. One of my training runs, uh, my yardstick was six hours. I'd always do these six-hour runs, and I figured if I could do a couple of those comfortably, I felt confident that I can go into these races and, and race yeah. to, to maybe not to my potential, but to race and enjoy the day. One of those runs took me to Gunstock up in New Hampshire. Right in our backyard. So you get uh, went to yeah, get some get some mountain in too, right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And in fact, I chose Gunstock because a friend of mine, who you you probably know also, Dave Dunham. Yeah, I asked him about uh, trying to find a mountain run locally, as in like New Hampshire, 
Massachusetts, somewhere in there, where I could spend six hours running rather than rock hopping or scrambling. I wanted to run. Right. I wanted the whole thing to be runnable. And he gave me a route in Gunstock, which for... I guess the average okay runner was exactly not 100% runnable, but yeah. uh, I think that the last person who went on this trail was probably Dave Dunham 15 years prior. And when I got to the trail, I was romping through this trail and I was breaking not only like spider webs and all that stuff, I was breaking the overbrush. The trail kind of grew on itself. So I yeah. crawled through a lot of stuff. I was pulling a lot of spider webs off myself. And without question, I got bit by either a tick or something in that stretch. And that's really the key here is that the common notion that Lyme is carried by a tick, and usually it is. However, Lyme could also be carried by other things. But right oh, now, really? the focus is really on, on ticks. It has been thought to be carried by other types of species, species if you will. Um, Little mites and stuff. One of the things so, I always hear people say is that it, the tick has to hang out, has to bite you and hang, or hang around for 48 hours in order for you to get Lyme disease. I've heard that too. There's a couple thought, thoughts here is that unfortunately I, I've learned a lot about Lyme and what I've learned just because I've been dealing with it and what I've learned is that not even doctors fully know. So yeah, there's a lot yeah. of people who say this common perception that if the tick doesn't bite you and it's hanging on you for, for like 24 hours, then you're good. And there's a lot, a lot of cases, and I am one of them, who I never even saw the tick. Right. But I did see some fly, weird flying, like, mosquito-type things that came and nabbed me. And it was in the general area where I wound up uh, about seven days later getting a huge bullseye, the common uh -huh. uh, symptom yep. of Lyme. But before that, it was six days after I got bit. It was six days after where I was just knocked on my ass. I mean, something just plowed through me knocked on my ass, and basically I couldn't get out of bed for about uh, maybe 24 hours straight. And I knew, this was in the middle of summer, and I knew it wasn't, I was having a fever or it wasn't just a common cold or anything. I knew something was wrong with me. So of course, you know, naturally, Monday comes around, I go to the doctor and they put me right away on the, uh, the doxycycline, which right. is commonly prescribed for somebody who comes in with Lyme symptoms. Now it's so common that doctors don't even need to test and get a positive result back. They'll just put you on the doxy if you have the profile of somebody who might have been bitten by a tick or that kind of thing. They put you on the med. If you do it just once, it's pretty safe. And about 90% of the people clear up and they'll never deal with it again. In my case, I went on the doxy. I cleared up that next weekend. I had some light sensitivity due to the medication. And there was a couple other symptoms from the medication that I had. But the next weekend, I did a three-hour run. That was my step-back week. The weekend after that, I went up to six hours again. And then not long after that, I actually spoke with you. And then I wound up doing the Canadian death race. Right. But ever since then, when I had that, or really ever since, let's just say, put a line in the sand, ever since we spoke last, I've never been the same, even though... I went on for another three, four years of still performing. I still ran some decent marathons for my, my own ability. I always had something in my body that I knew wasn't right. Yeah. I just attributed to finally the mileage catching up to me. But I'm a pretty healthy dude. I've been healthy. I've been hitting it hard. I'm not just like this weekend warrior or somebody who's just been running for five years and I got fast and now I'm saying, hey, look at me. I mean, I've been doing this since the early 90s. So right. why would something... Tough. It's tough yeah. to, when you get to that point where you're actually aging a little bit. 
to try to sort out what's the natural loss of performance and when there's something wrong, right? It's, yeah, it's absolutely. Tough. Yep. And, so you're and having so that actually, conversation in your head, right? And going, yeah, well, I'm just yeah. getting older. I'm just getting older. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, I said that to myself for about three, four years of saying that heaviness, I had my legs. All my friends knew it because I called it dead legs. I had dead yeah. legs. That was just growing yeah. and growing. And I knew it wasn't traditional dead legs. I mean, I've, I've had dead legs before from just running too much. This was different and I knew it and it would never go away, even with rest, even with just doing not much. And it was just always different. It was this heaviness that was unlike a heaviness you get from running back-to-back marathons. This was just something that was unmistakably different. And what was really interesting about it was that gradually, over time, two really wild traits happened. And those today are actually glaring. And it's a huge symptom that at least gives the doctors a lot of information. The two traits were that At first, as the heaviness in my legs grew over the years, for example, I used to be a staple at the Rhode Island six-hour run, which is basically just a run on a loop course. It's like a 2.3-mile loop, and you run for six hours, and whoever completes the most loops wins. And I used to go down there all the time. One year I went there, this is the first year after getting Lyme, I went there, and I already noticed the heaviness in my legs. And for whatever reason, I hit mile 26 of the six-hour thing, And all of a sudden, the Lyme just left my body. The illness left my body. I didn't know I was ill at the time, but that heaviness left my body. And I went on to just stomp from like mile 26 to mile like 42 or whatever, however miles I did that day. I mean, I I crushed the rest of the race. And I climbed up Mm. from like 10th place to 2nd place. And so I tell you that as an example because... That happened to me every single race. I would go into these marathons like, all right, I feel like hell until mile 18, and then I know the heaviness leaves my legs. But by then, the tiredness kicks in, so I slow down anyway. <laughs> but I've yeah. learned to like not listen to my body because my body would tell me some weird stuff that I, I just have to plow through. When your legs are heavy like that, it makes training just not fun. You know, yeah, you feel so like you're fighting gravity. Yeah, dude, absolutely. And that plays right into the second trade. The other thing I noticed was that I couldn't train for anything after mm. about a year. A year later, I couldn't train. And I, so I'm a morning person. I do all my stuff in the morning. I, you know, I got kids at home, so I, I need to get out in the morning. And what I learned, I didn't realize this at the time. It was all in hindsight because I just thought, ah, you know, I'm probably getting older. I probably have too many miles on my body. What I learned was that I started pushing all of my quality speed work sessions. In fact, all of my tempo work, all of my speed, anything that had to do with moving the legs quicker, I pushed it all to noon because I couldn't do it in the morning. And Mm. then I started struggling even doing it at noon because so I lost the ability to perform in the morning. I started losing it at noon. And so what I realized is that I can actually do the stuff on the treadmill so much better than I can on the roads. And so I started for the last like four years or so, I trained for Boston exclusively, all my speed, all my quality speed on a treadmill at noon because I couldn't do any of this in the morning. And then I lost the ability to do it on the roads. So I found the treadmill for whatever reason, the difference between road and treadmill, it's like the biggest debate that runners have. Is it good for you? Is it not? How is it different? And I can tell you without question that at least with my illness at play, the heaviness in my legs, I was able to do like a five-minute mile on the treadmill, but the best I could do on the roads was maybe a 5.45, maybe 5.50. 
And yeah. I'm talking even with like a 1% incline on the treadmill. So anyway, a long way to say there's something that happened to my power station, especially in the morning. And then that creeped up on me. It overcame me. And then it got to the point I couldn't r- even run in the morning, not even let alone do quality. I couldn't even run in the morning when the illness got yeah, really bad. Yeah, and you're an ex-Iron Man, so you are no stranger to getting up at the ass crack at dawn and doing yeah. super hard workouts. Yeah, exactly. I've done so many of them in my lifetime that I just love getting up early. And especially when you got a hard workout, you get your hard workout, you're done by like 6.30 and you just log good 12 miles on the road with good six of it at good speed. It's an immense feeling that carries you for the rest of the day. What about training in the heat or the cold? Did you find that temperature had a outsized effect on you when you were suffering? Myself, not at all. I, I find the same behavior in the summer when it's crazy hot and humid uh, as I do when it's really cold outside. What I do notice is that, so the Lyme has basically infiltrated my body and amongst many other things, it's basically attacked my joints. So I feel that not a lot more, I would say a little more in the winter as you normally would. I mean, so basically I have a whole collection of symptoms and some of the symptoms, not all of them, would fit the check mark, check boxes for rheumatoid arthritis. I say RA because people are, they hear about it, they're kind of familiar with it. They know that like the immune system is attacking the joints, so your joints feel pounded. Well, my joints are almost always pounded. But when my illness is doing well, it pulls away and all of a sudden my body feels like nothing ever happened and I'm still 32 and hitting it hard. That's what almost put Bart Yasso out of business too. You know that, right? Yes, I do, uh, yes. The lime in his joints, yeah. Did you ever figure out why it would sort of go away when you got it past the, you know, the two and a half hour mark? I didn't, but that was also before symptoms kind of snowballed on me and it started affecting my life, not just my performance. And you, you know, didn't, so I've you come didn't a long su- way since then. You didn't suspect that you had it or you must have suspected that something was going on? Like I said, during the early phases, I just thought I have too many miles on my body and uh, I took my marathon and kind of to the next level. Some of the things I've been doing, you know, I went on this marathon a month streak for a while. So I do have a lot of miles on my body. I've done a lot of ultra marathons. I think you and I do have a, a similar profile. I think I've run, I've stopped counting, but I think I've run 120 marathons, countless ultra marathons, that kind of stuff. I, I just thought I had a lot of miles on my body. I thought I'm in my mid 40s, so maybe. Uh, Everyone told me, you know, like somewhere around 43 to 45, things change. And uh, I did notice that. But the interesting thing is that when I get on a treadmill, I can still move my wheels. I just can't do it on the road. Is that getting older? I don't know. But now I start knowing. I'll give you an example. During my journey toward diagnosis, because it's been a long, I would say, two years since I Not that I hit rock bottom, but that my symptoms started affecting my life. So it's been about two years. During that whole journey, I didn't know what I had. I suspected it was Lyme. I had this good story with all these data points that I've collected over the years, and especially backfilled once I realized that something was seriously wrong with me. I didn't know I had Lyme, and I was seeing a lot of different doctors. And there's this, the conventional medicine in today Most of them do not subscribe to chronic Lyme if the patient had been treated with Doxy. They fully believe that Doxy clears the whole body. Broad-spectrum antibiotic. Yeah. So basically, it's, it's the nuclear option. Exactly. And they fully subscribe to because there's no clinical evidence 
per se. I don't agree with that, though, because if you do your research, you'll find some evidence. But they'll say there's no clinical evidence to show that when patients fall ill again, that it is Lyme. What they debate, they say that it's usually because of the damage caused by the Lyme, but it's not right. the Lyme any, yeah. any longer. And I see both sides. I really do. But the truth is, like for me, I didn't start to get better until I got on well-known Lyme antibiotics. And, you know, I had all of the serious cases of chronic Lyme that are at least documented. I, my case and my treatment towards getting better, which, which I'm still in the middle of, I still deal with symptoms. I'm still on antibiotics. My whole profile of getting better fit the same profile of other people in the same position. Yeah, that's, that's you know, so it, it really so is. They, and, they, and like, they can't test for the bacteria itself in your system. So they can. There are serious limitations to what they can test. Lyme is a really, really complicated thing, and I wish I didn't know as much as I do, but I, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> so really interesting. It's basically there's a couple strains that could come in with Lyme. The, at least the popular ones. And there are tests for them if the Lyme is in the bloodstream. I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to complicate the story a lot worse. So what usually happens with the Lyme is you get Lyme and you have these symptoms. You go to the doctor. The doctor looks at you, does some blood work, and puts you on the doxy right away. The reason why they put you on the doxy right away is because, A, they know that you even if whether you test positive or not, if you respond to the doxy, there's a good chance you had Lyme. Lyme right. does not show up into the bloodstream until you've had it contracted for about three weeks. And even yeah. so, it doesn't always show up because Lyme can evade the bloodstream. It could go into the cells. It could go into your tissue. It could go into other parts of the body and completely stay out of the bloodstream. And yeah, so it hides well. It hides well, very well. And so not only that, not only do you have those couple strains, Lyme typically comes with one or more co-infections. And those co-infections could be just as or even nastier than the Lyme. And the problem with the co-infections are that my numbers here, what I'm about to tell you, are going to be a little bit off, but it's the generalization is the message, which is there are like 18 known co-infections, but only three or five of which they have actually tests for. That's really mm -hmm. scary. And that's only 18 known. There's probably many, many others. So the real lesson is that when you take a step back is like, it's not only ticks, it's like even mosquitoes, these strange parasites and things that come with, you know, the bacteria that could be manifested within these organisms that bite or somehow bury themselves in you. That's, it's just nasty stuff. And so a lot of that just isn't fully known. The whole profile of that isn't known by doctors. And that's what people like me now, that now unfortunately, um, that's what I'm living with. Yeah, but the initial symptoms are pretty straightforward. You get that bullseye rash, and a lot of times you'll find a, a deer tick hanging off you. I've got friends, uh, you probably know Paul Funch, too. He was out trail running, and, and the deer tick got him under his hair on his scalp. So he never yep. knew he got the bullseye rash. Yeah, right? yeah of course. And he got limes, and but he got fixed up. Yeah, so it's and really not every, kind of sneaky. It is. And as I we mean, were talking earlier, too, like not everybody gets a bullseye, but you could still have right. the symptoms. The good yeah. news is that for probably 90% or higher, the people who get on Doxy right away are good. They'll probably never have symptoms again for the rest of their lives. They yeah. may have had just a mild strain. They caught at the right time. Their body reacted well enough, and their immune system held it off well enough. And they had no co-infections or some mild co-infection. That whole profile was pretty easy and simple for most people. But the ones who have it a little more complex, 
or a little a tougher strain, those are the ones who tend to go on later in life and, and have some issues. So let me ask you this. So you figured out what was wrong with you. You're on the protocol to, to try to get better. It seems like you're getting better. But what was the psychological curve there for you when you started losing this thing that had been such a huge part of your life for the last 20 years or so? It's a great question. What I will say is I really, really missed doing what I did. And it wasn't really just the daily running. It was competing. It was racing. It was being in that kind of environment socially. And those connections, those friends. I mean, you and I are very similar. We have so many of our network of friends who are built around this. And so for me, I honestly have to say that it wasn't nearly as difficult as I thought it would be. And I know that may not be an answer people are looking for or want to hear. But for me, I think it was what helped me through this is that I've always been a guy with glass three quarters full type of guy, better than half full. Right. And, and, you know, I have such a support network through friends, through family. I got two beautiful kids at home and an awesome wife. So when yeah. I constantly, and I think running has taught me this, just, you know, being out there with, with yourself, by yourself, with your thoughts for so much time, it gives you good perspective on life. And I think that right. one of the massive lessons I've taken out of that is perspective. Running is a hobby of mine. It's a huge hobby of my large part of my life. But in my eyes, what I actually came to learn is that it doesn't define me. It's just something I do. Right, so it's not exactly. to trivialize it. Yeah. And it's huge to me. It's just like you. It's huge to you. When I look at it that way, I'm able to put it in perspective and say, you know, when I come home from work, my son, all he wants to do is jump on me and play. And he doesn't know I'm ill. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think the key lesson there is when you're training for something, you go to the dark place and you're just not enjoying it anymore. You got to take the time to remember how grateful you should be for being able to get out the door at all. Yep. Absolutely. And just take time. Yeah, take time to be yeah. grateful. Don't get so caught up in it. It's not a absolutely. job. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, not, not a job for me, anyhow. So yeah. um, what's, the pro- <laughs> what's the prognosis? Are you going to get all the way out of this, or is this something you're going to have forever now? So we don't know. I'm hoping that I'll get out of this and I'll be done with it. Typically, I say typically because so far my treatment has really mirrored the cases of people with chronic Lyme who are not like near death, but who are not easy. So it's like middle of the road. And my case so far has really mirrored that. I'm hoping it continues to. And so what looks like what's coming forward in the future is that I may have maybe another three to three months to maybe a year of antibiotics. And so I'm on this protocol yeah. that is long-term, but it's done in a way that allows my immune system to respond and get back on top of things. So it's long and drawn out. I basically go two weeks on of antibiotics, two weeks off, two weeks on, and sometimes I take a longer break. Usually what they say is they like people to stay on the treatment, and my doctor subscribes to this, stay on the treatment at least three months after you are sure you're done with the Lyme. Yeah. And so then you have to work yeah, your you way say, out of the damage that the antibiotics did to your system. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we know a lot more today than we do yesterday. So, like, here's an example. Like, this, so you're right. The antibiotics do a lot of damage. And so, you know, what my doctor has me make sure I'm on is there are certain things I do to detox my body of the antibiotics. 
like I make sure I take a probiotic. I go in routinely for some IV of, it's like, it's called like a Myers cocktail. It's just a bag of vitamins that they put in me through IV. And it's just to make sure that I have everything in me that you can't just get through food, that you can't get through just living a healthy life, that the antibiotics take away, that we make sure that I'm all topped off. And so hopefully I won't have too long of a period, as long as I stay on top of all that, too long of a period after I'm off the antibiotics to start rebounding. But I think I will forevermore, let's just say in a, in a happy sunny day case, I get rid of the Lyme in, in six months. I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to be dealing with the damage that the Lyme has done specifically to right. like my joints and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, yeah, I'll it, always it, have it, that. It's into everything. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but you're starting to come back. You're do, having some better performance. You feel better in your athletics now? I am. They say usually, uh, I'm on this pulse protocol. I won't go into the details, but they say basically by your fifth pulse, which is about 15 weeks in, by your fifth pulse, people start noticing, you could look back and say, I'm better. I'm not, yeah. I'm not better as in 100% better, but I'm better than when I started. And that, that happened to me as well. And during that time, it was only of those 15 weeks, it was only the last three to four weeks where I got enough of my power station back, like my energy, where I was able to start laying down runs. And thankfully, because I've been doing what I can all along, my legs have been down for six months. My legs still came back pretty quickly. I don't have my speed, obviously, but I'm able to get out and actually hit it hard. Yeah, but after uh, but, suffering after suffering for five years, I, I'm sure you're okay with doing a few months worth of base building. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't look at base building anymore. I just look at it as my opportunity to run. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I'm like you. I'm I a think... hard charger. If I like running hard, and so if I can run hard, you know, I'm going to be running hard. Yeah, and nutrition makes a big difference, too, as you get older. I mean, you're not as old as me, but I found that I discovered that this year, too, that if you really dial in your nutrition for two or three months, it really has a positive effect on oh, your yeah. uh, and, 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 on everything. Let's face it. Yeah, and let's face it, you know, look upon the New England landscape of some prominent runners that you and I both know who now reached into their 60s or even 50s who all of a sudden, like, they've been longtime runners and all of a sudden, like, they have these heart conditions yeah. where they have a heart attack. Yeah. And basically what they learned from their doctors is, yeah, well, you've been running for 20, 30, 40 years and you've been competing, you've been doing all this great stuff and you've been eating and drinking all you want. And you, that's not yeah. good. So your waistline might be nice and trim and you look really fit and healthy and your skin glows, but you're not healthy on the inside. We know tons of people like that. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the runner zeitgeist up here is the beer runs and the pizza runs and all that stuff. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know me. I'm the all first right, on the beer runs. <laughs> all right, Chris. <laughs> I'll let you go. Are you going up to Mill Cities this week? No, I'm I'm not in that kind of shape, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. It's a easier run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you going to be there? Yeah, they always give me the long leg for some reason. Yeah, that's good, though. That's good. That's good. You want right. that leg. All right, Chris, yeah, good talking to you, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll catch you in another five years. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're better. Yeah, thank good you, luck man. With that. Thank you, buddy. All yeah, right, thank thanks. you, buddy. Bye. Later. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Five Practices of effective executives. I'm reading or rereading a small book by Peter Drucker called The Effective Executive. It was published in 1966. 
and the edition I have is from 1987. So it must have been deemed worthy of some further ink and paper when it was 11 years old, but how does it hold up in 2016? Can we learn anything from it? Drucker was researching and writing on executives and organizations at a time when the concept of the modern executive was new. He coined the phrase knowledge worker in 1957. This was a new generation of organizations and executives. These organizations moved beyond the previous generation of work, which was direct manual laborers and overseers to make sure the work got done. Emerging after World War II was a class of workers that he called knowledge workers who leveraged their knowledge, not their manual dexterity, to add value. Leading or managing these organizations were a new breed of executive, and they needed a new paradigm. And most of us these days are knowledge workers, so all of this as knowledge workers is applicable to us. Drucker made the point that it was no longer good enough to be efficient, which was how the manual laborers used to be measured. Time studies, stopwatches. These new executives would have to do something they had no experience in. They had to focus on being effective. Why is it so hard for executives to be effective, is what Drucker asked in 1966, and he answered with five things. One, their time is not their own. (laughs) They are constantly at the mercy of interruption by employees, customers, and other stakeholders. Sound familiar? How much of an effectiveness today is based on being able to escape the tyranny of everyone else's expectations and needs? Not only is this still relevant in 2016, it's probably worse. With the new forms of instantaneous communication and 24 by 7 global availability, today's executives, they need to have very good systems and constructs of support to get anything effective done. So yeah, that's valid. Number two, executives are pulled to be more operational than they should be. So it's still a challenge in 2016. How many times have you seen the technical executive not able to leave their comfort zone when their role is expanded? Especially when the reason they got promoted was how well they executed at the engineering or the process execution level. There is always some crisis that they can comfortably throw themselves back into and solve, but they shouldn't. Being operational effective is probably somebody else's job, so that's still relevant. They are within an organization, with the emphasis on organization in this case. This is number three. The executive can only be successful, can only be effective, can only influence through the leverage of the organization. Individuals don't scale well. Organizations are that leverage to scale the executives, the knowledge workers' effectiveness. And I would say this isn't entirely true in 2016. All us individual contributors need to learn how to leverage the team to get stuff done. Number four, they are within the organization, within being highlighted here. And Drucker warned in 1966 that the executive is surrounded by their organization. They see it very well. They see 
the outside world differently. They only see the outside world through the haze of their organization. It distorts their vision of the business. Still relevant in 2016? Yeah, I think it is. Probably not as much of a general risk. The mobility of the 2016 workforce keeps lateral ideas flowing in industry. I think more the speed and transparency of communication lets the outside world more clearly into the office of the 2016 executive, but there are still companies and executive organizations and knowledge workers that turn in on themselves and lose their effectiveness. So if you dropped this little book, The Effective Executive, into Time Machine in 1966 and zapped it 60 years forward, you know, would these challenges still make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think it would still be effective and, and instructional in today's leadership. So apart from some obvious anachronisms, I think it would work. Efficiency is still the driving force in a lot of organizations. How can we get more done? And that might not be the right question. The right question might be, how do we get the right stuff done? And that's often overlooked. So if you don't focus on being effective, all you do is create a cloud of dust and no forward movement. So this brings us back to the executive, right? Based on these challenges, what did Drucker say that they needed to do to be more effective? What kind of person is this? And he said there's a myth that executives need to be some sort of superhero, some sort of super leader who has the, all these amazing attributes. And it's a myth that they are born this way, right? You just have to find the right person. And that's our nature, really, to put the high performers on a pedestal because they have some sort of superpower. You know, they're born that way. And don't get me started on the current superhero fetish. <laughs> the truth is that executives and effective executives are not born, they're made. In many cases, they are made from barely competent men and women like you and I, sorry, you and me, <laughs> grammar police, can anyone guess how Drucker said the average Joe Jill could be made into an effective executive, what his five points were about in 1966? Go ahead, think on it. I'll wait. You ready? Got an answer? Guess what the answer is? Practice. How often do I talk to you about practice? The best concepts are timeless. The way effective executives are made is the same way an effective anything is made through practice. Effective executive practice is the right things every day. But Chris, you say, what do they practice to become more effective? Well, Drucker said there are five things. An interesting side note here is that all your current internet headlines always have five or seven things, don't they? Because that must be the number that scores the most clicks. So Drucker, way ahead of his time, could have made it into a blog post if they had blogs in 1966. Five things effective executives do well. The five things that you need to practice as an effective executive are, number one, effective executives know where their time goes. And this seems so simple. It is as universally true today as it was 60 years ago. The only thing we can't get more of is time. Still true. Most people have no idea how to manage their time for effectiveness. Number two, effective executives focus on outward execution. This is universally true as well today as it was then. It's not about you. 
It's about how you influence the world around you that makes you effective. Number three, effective executives build on strength. Hallelujah! We spend so much time trying to fix our shortcomings and the shortcomings of those around us, we fail to leverage the gifts that we've been given. Focus on strengths. Number four, effective executives focus on a few major areas where superior performance will produce outstanding results. Sounds like leverage to me. Quadrant four activities, anyone? I wonder how much Stephen Covey was influenced by this little book. Find the important things to work on and work on them in big chunks. Number five, effective executives make effective decisions. In other words, they have a rigorous decision-making process. This may be a bit anachronistic to a time when the executives were more patriarchal and they were relied on for big King Solomon-type decisions. But the decision-making process is still key. One of the things I had to teach myself when I first led a company was to make decisions and to own those decisions. To have decision-making become a practice, you need to have a decision-making process. And this may include gathering information and opinions, making a decision, communicating the decision, and then owning that decision through its life cycle. It's a process and a practice. So these are the five key practices that Drucker identified in 1966, the five challenges, the five solutions. They may or may not be the most salient five for you in your role, but they are a starting point worth thinking about. I can guarantee that if you sit back and examine yourself and your career, you should be able to identify some related practices that would make you more effective. The timeless advice here, the timeless knowledge And the timeless learning is that regardless of the role you play, practice is the key to success. Whether it's training for a marathon or managing a company, there are certain finite practices that you can identify and cultivate to reap success. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. All righty then. You and I have battled off a host of nasty internal pathogens to get to the end of episode 4-354 of the Run Run Live podcast. How about that? Like I said in the intro, I raced this past weekend, the long leg, leg four out of five, and it's quite doable. It's flat to downhill course along the Merrimack River. The challenges are that sometimes the weather is dicey in December. You know, there could be a headwind at the end. And also, you don't get much time to warm up. You don't get a chance to warm up. The leg before the 9.5 is the short 2.5-mile leg. So you're basically driving to the exchange, jumping out of the car, and racing. And my old body does better with a thorough warm-up these days, especially on cold-weather days. But uh, it went well. I went out super fast. I had a rival club team with a three-minute head start on us that I could potentially catch if everything went well. So I laid the first three miles down at a sub-seven pace, but I wasn't feeling it. I felt heavy. I have been letting my diet slip since Portland, and I think it caught up with me here. I ended up averaging somewhere between 715s and 720s, which, given where I've been over the last five years, I'm thrilled with. (laughs) My heart rate was awesome, but my legs were heavy, and I wasn't running clean. I was sore. Uh, 
from this effort. And I whined the coach and he said, you're racing too much. But that's what he always says. My heart is strong and my aerobic base is huge, huge. So I'm feeling pretty good about the spring season. I can always fix the diet. And if I can stay healthy, I should be able to get some good performances in. So I'll tell you a story. I drove into my old office in Burlington last week. It's behind the mall. And anyone who knows anything about American culture knows that the malls do 85 to 90 percent of their business in the short time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And my usual route when I'm coming off the highway is to cut through the mall, to cut the corner on the turnpike and save a few stoplights and a little time. And this time of year, even in the middle of the day, the mall is busy. The parking lot is full, there are people, cars, and general holiday confusion and freneticism. I rounded a corner by the old Sears store in my truck and saw a woman pushing a stroller crossing the road. And it's a tight corner, so I surprised her. And there was never any danger of me hitting her because I saw her and I wasn't driving recklessly. But she's in that no-woman's land of the crossing, you know, less than halfway across, too far to turn back, forward momentum into the middle of the street. And I can see that combination of fear and anger on her face. And she's doing the Newtonian physics in her head where she sees my truck coming around the corner and she sees the very small chance that I might be checking my email or twiddling with the radio and she's going to have to sprint for the curb or die. But there's more to that look. There's that harried nature of the young mother's life. She's got a million errands to run and has to drag the kid along with her. She's probably already well behind schedule on her mental checklist for the day. So I break to a stop and wave her across. As she bustles by, I notice the stroller. In it is a child, maybe two years old, all bundled up against the cold. And he's wearing a bear hat with bear ears. And he's got the biggest smile on his face, like riding around in the stroller in his bear hat on a cold, gray November day is the coolest adventure ever. And watching them cross, the mom probably wasn't having a great day, but the kid was having a fantastic time. And maybe he didn't know he was supposed to be miserable. Which attitude are you going to have during the holidays? And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he left. So hard it made him cry. Alrighty then, here we are, the Run Run Live recording booth. <clears throat> I have paper I'm going to read from. Paper. I'm so old style, huh? Oh, I might <laughs> I might even need my reading glasses. <laughs> well, I don't have enough pages. I'm out of pages. Hmm. And I'll be right back after I find the third page. Go ahead. Talk among yourselves. All right. I got it. 